1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BDW, void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
0: Useless Information
1: Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear was released on October 29th of 2009, and I titled it The Great Elephant Caper. It's an interesting story in which a man was arrested for a crime that never, ever occurred. Now when I wrote the story all those years ago, I could have never imagined that the Ringling Brothers Circus would close up shop in 2017. But I should add that as I'm recording this new introduction, the circus has restarted Although they no longer feature any live animals. Another thing to note is that later in the episode, I quickly tell the story of a boy who won a contest for writing the best essay on peace. I wrote that tidbit so many years ago that I had completely forgotten that I'd ever done so. At least that was until a few minutes ago when I listened to the episode for the first time in 15 years. Anyway, fast forward to February 2022. And I told that story in its entirety in podcast number 166. And that one was titled the Eddie Cantor Peace Prize. And honestly, I had no memory of ever telling it all those years earlier. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of the street. My name is Steve Silberman, and Today's story is one that I've titled The Great Elephant Caper. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. Now, for today's question of the day, I thought I would choose a topic that's a little bit more mainstream than I've done in the uh, previous podcasts. And it has to do with one of the most hated people in history, and that is Adolf Hitler. Now, what's surprising to most people is that he was not born in Germany. In fact, he didn't move to Germany until he was 24 years old. So my question for you today is quite simple. What country was Adolf Hitler born in? Again, what country was Adolf Hitler born in? And I'll leave you in suspense until the end of this podcast. And now for today's story on pachyderm poisoning that I've titled The Great Elephant Caper. So let's turn the hands of time back to November 6, 1941 and take a visit to Atlanta, Georgia. It's here that we learn that 15 of the 52 elephants that were owned by the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus still around today was stricken by a strange, unknown malady. It seems that two of the elephants died the first day, four died on the second, and 11 were gone within the week. Now, these were among the circus's best elephants and reported it was reported at the time to be a $125,000 loss. Now, that may not seem like a big deal today, but I did uh, some calculations and figured out that's about $1.8 million in today's currency. That is a big chunk of change. So what happened? As you would expect, an autopsy was immediately performed on four of the elephants, and it was later determined by the Georgia State biochemists that each elephant had more than enough arsenic, that's basically rat poison, in their blood to kill them. But the circus officials were stumped. They were just unable to explain how the arsenic ended up in their elephant's food. But one thing was clear to all of those involved in the investigation, and that was that these elephants were murdered. So the police questioned drugstores in the previous three cities that the circus had performed in to see if anyone, any of the druggists, could identify the person that purchased large quantities of arsenic. The circus also hired a private investigator, and he concluded that it had to be done by someone familiar with the circus. Someone had to know the inner workings to actually pull this off. Word of the elephant murders spread quickly across the United States. Day after day, updates were provided by the newspapers for their readers. And I really like this. An 8-year-old boy named Francis Thompson became so upset that he sent a dime into the Richmond Times-Dispatch to establish a fund for the purchase of new elephants for the circus. An 8-state manhunt had been underway when the big break came in the case on November 17, 1941. That's when 32-year-old Elwin Bulgin michael of Des Moines, Iowa was arrested by St. Petersburg police after two witnesses came forward. It seems that the two witnesses had been watching the erection of tents, the circus tents, in Charlotte, North Carolina, on Sunday, November 2nd. That's a few days before the uh, case uh, made the national news. And they saw Michael reach into his pocket and pull out five large white capsules. Each were about an inch long and about the thickness of your finger. And they observed him feed them to a large elephant. And Michael had just been hired on June 18th, just you know, a short period before, by the circus as a wheeler. He was part of the crew that helped load and unload the circus from the trains. The two witnesses had been taken to the fairgrounds to observe all 225 loaders, and both men identified Michael as the man that they saw give the capsules to the elephant. The noose around Michael's neck got tighter and tighter and tighter, A third witness then came forward and claimed that Michael had been run out of the bull tent several times. Then police determined that inquiries for 50 arsenic tablets had been made at a Danville, Virginia pharmacy. The man that sought to make this purchase was similar in description to the suspect, Michael. As you would expect, Michael immediately claimed his innocence. He said he was in a Charleston theater watching the movie Robin Hood. But detectives found a newspaper clipping about the death of the elephants in his possession. So the police continued to grill Michael. You know They were sure they had the right man, and they were determined to nail him against the wall for such a gruesome crime against such innocent animals. But then the case started to unravel. The two original witnesses that picked him out of a lineup gave different descriptions of the clothes that Michael supposedly was wearing at the time he fed these poisonous pills to the elephants and the third witness could not identify Michael in the police lineup. On top of that, the pharmacist back in Danville, Virginia, said that a different man had purchased the 50 arsenic tablets. It was not Michael. But lastly, the death of the elephants also coincided with the untimely death of four circus employees, and there were another four that were violently ill at the time. After 11 days in custody, police were forced to release Michael for lack of evidence. All the charges were eventually dropped. So, what happened? Well, in the end, animal experts became increasingly convinced that the elephants were poisoned by arsenic that had been accidentally dumped onto the circus lot. Basically, they were grazing and they ate the arsenic. And it turns out this was not the first time this had happened. It seems that 11 elephants had become ill in Charlotte, North Carolina eight years earlier after grazing in a lot that was contaminated by the seepage from a nearby industrial plant. And get this, the circus had played the same exact lot the previous Tuesday, just prior to these elephants dying. Maybe that's where the arsenic came from. In the end, the hides of the 11 poisoned elephants were sold to the sterling leatherworks to be tanned and made into luggage. As many people know, this was not the end of tragedy for the circus. A fire occurred less than a year later in their circus menagerie tent on August third, 1942. That fire killed 45 animals, including 13 camels, 9 zebras, 5 lions, 4 more of their elephants, and a number of other assorted circus animals. And of course, then there's the uh, famous July 6, 1944 fire in Hartford, Connecticut that killed 168 people. Both of these fires were due to the fact that the circus tents were waterproofed with paraffin wax dissolved in, get this, gasoline, which was a very common mixture back then. And, of, you know, of course, they no longer use it. And I think I'll leave those stories for uh, future podcasts. Useless, useful. I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch- that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. necessary by law. and website for details. And now a few words from our retro sponsor. If you're resolved to wage a private war on high prices, here's a great way to begin. Go to the friendly independent store in your community that sells ClipperCraft clothes. Select the luxurious Clippercraft suit that satisfies your taste, but note that it costs only $40 or $45. It's a terrific value. It has to be. Your Clippercraft dealer is one of the more than 1,200 independent stores from coast to coast who concentrate their huge purchasing power for the greatest possible savings in production and distribution so that even a rich looking pure worsted suit with the famous Clippercraft label costs only $45. Yes, the store in your community that sells Clippercraft clothes is your personal purchasing agent, your private value scout. They pick Clippercraft especially to keep you sold, and they're 100% right. You'll find out for yourself when you compare Clippercraft with clothes selling for many dollars more.
1: That commercial originally aired on December 26, 1948, on an episode of The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. That episode was called The Blue Carbuncle. Anyway, uh, Clipper Craft was a popular store brand of men's clothing, as you heard, that had been sold through more than 1,200 stores at its peak. It was started in the early 1900s as a, a small, independent Boston company and uh, expanded, expanded, and uh, it was still around in uh, 1976 when they were sponsoring Family Feud, but uh, seems to have faded out and uh, can no longer be found. If you're curious... That $45 suit adjusted for inflation today would be about $400. So that gives you an idea of what the value of their clothing was in the day. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first tidbit goes back to April 14, 1936, where it's reported that Lloyd Franklin Lewis, who was 18 at the time, won a $5,000 college scholarship for submitting the best 500-word essay on how to achieve world peace. Quite a noble effort there. He went from his home in Missouri to New York City to appear on the Eddie Cantor radio show to accept his prize. But before he got on the air, he was confronted by Cantor's manager who found the same essay in a December 1935 issue of Peace Digest. It seems that uh, 18-year-old Lewis did not write it. It was written by Frank Kingdon, who was the president of the University of Newark at the time. Now, Lloyd said he didn't intend to cheat. He just didn't know the rules. He didn't realize it had to be an original essay. He just thought he had to submit the best essay on world peace. Well, Eddie Cantor believed his story, paid all of his expenses while he was in town, and even paid for his ticket home. Our next little tidbit goes back to September 24, 1937, which reported that 12-year-old Toledo, Ohio, student named Robert Snyder shot 59-year-old June Mapes, the principal of a school, in the abdomen. The boy then turned and put a bullet through his head and walked one half a mile back to his house, amazingly both fully recovered. Now, Snyder shot the principal because she would not call a girl classmate down to her office. He then pulled out his dad's automatic pistol and shot her. Police and psychologists quickly blamed it on the fact that the young boy had been listening to violent radio programs and reading bandit stories. Sound very familiar? Sounds like a claim that they make today about video games. So what was his reason for calling the girl to the principal's office? This is a quote, I intended to force Miss Mapes to buy us ice cream cones, end of quote. And our last little tidbit goes back to June 5th, 1937, and it happens to be another story from Toledo, Ohio, around the same time, where it's reported that seven to 800 men went on a rampage and destroyed the Chicago Pike Private Club. They ripped down the doors, smashed the windows, and then torched the place. Why? It's because each man paid $1 to see an indecent female show, and the sheriff's department told the promoter that the show couldn't go on. The crowd then
0: went berserk and destroyed the place. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now the answer to today's question of the day, and I asked about one of the most evil people in history, and that is Adolf Hitler. Most people think that he was from Germany, but that's actually incorrect. It turns out that he was born and raised elsewhere. He didn't come to Germany until he was 24 years of age in 1913. Now, I asked this question to my students the other day, and I was amazed that most of them knew the answer. Adolf Hitler was from Austria. And what's even more amazing is that he didn't become a German citizen until 1932, Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the great elephant caper, as well as our question of the day about Adolf Hitler, listening to our retro sponsor, Clipper Craft Clothes, and the news of the weird past tidbits on the plagiarized essay, the 12 year old that shot his principal, and of course, the mob that destroyed the nightclub. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman. They're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. I've also received word this week that Einstein's Refrigerator is now available as an Amazon Kindle book. I was surprised to receive that word from my publisher. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name or visit my website at uselessinformation.org. The email again is useless at steve.silverman.name and the website is uselessinformation.org. As always, I would greatly appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. I made it all the way up to number six in their history section, although I've dropped a little bit since then. But I really do appreciate uh, what you've done for making it grow. Thanks for listening.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to—has anyone seen the bride and groom?